calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren, and today we're tackling a subject that I'm betting everyone has thought about at some point over the past year, and that's whether to work from home or go into the office or perhaps do a bit of both. If you're listening at home, you're probably trying to remember what your office even looked like and wondering when you'll be back. And if you're in the office, you may still be trying to figure out how many days you should spend there versus your home office. We're all trying to figure out what my guest today calls the Goldilocks plan of not too much and not too little remote work. Bob Posen is a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan School of Management and co-author with Alexandra Samuel of Remote Inc. How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are. He's also the author of Extreme Productivity, Boost Your Results, Reduce Your Hours. Bob and I spend some time digging into what it really means to thrive at work. We also discuss some hacks to boost your productivity, how employees should decide which days to come to the office, and the challenges managers face leading teams in a hybrid model. So let's get to it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bob and along the way, pick up some ideas on how to find the Goldilocks plan that works for you so you too can truly thrive at work. Welcome, Bob. It's great to have you on the show today. Well, great to be with you, Lauren. And congratulations are in order. Your new book just came out, Remote Inc., how to thrive at work wherever you are. I can, can imagine it must feel a great sense of relief to finally see after all these months and all that hard work, finally you've got a, a copy that's bound and it's on shelves. Yeah, it's a great feeling. We actually did the book in record time because we got the book contract in July. We handed in the book in November and uh, now we're publishing. So uh, uh, in book publishing time, that's a record. Uh, we might think it should be faster, but it isn't. Well, one of your books is Extreme Productivity, and you are just uh, an example of extreme productivity, it seems. <laughs> so, yes, we, 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 were, we were leading by example by yes. <laughs> the whole book in three or four months. Absolutely. <laughs> Jolly good. Well, we're going to spend most of our time talking about your latest book, but actually before we do that, and uh, there was a word in your subtitle that really caught my eye, and that is how to thrive at work wherever you are. Um, and I love words, and I kind of noodled on that word thrive a little bit longer. And it's a really sort of rich, positive word. And when you think of thriving, you have the sense of sort of flourishing and, and prospering. And you've had a very long, very distinguished career. And I'm curious, uh, two parts really, how you think about this word thrive when it comes to a career, but also over your career, what were the times when you really felt that you were thriving where you were? Well, those are interesting questions. As to the word, 
To me, thrive, which is, as you say, a very rich word, connotes two different things. One is uh, being uh, successful in your professional life, but it also means being satisfied as a person in when you're doing these things. So it's a combination of success professionally with satisfaction personally. Now, if you ask me when I felt that I thrived the most, it probably was when I did what I consider to be turnaround situation. When I took over as president of Fidelity Management and Research Co., uh, Fidelity was in a bit of a slump because uh, we had the Magellan Fund where uh, the manager decided to go uh, almost uh, 50% in cash. And that raised lots of problems. Uh, and we were able to get out of those problems uh, and set a different sort of truth in advertising. We decided collectively that all funds would have more than 80% of their assets in whatever asset uh, class was connoted by the name. And we reorganized the whole uh, investment operation and we soared and uh, thrived and we went from about 500 uh, billion to a trillion. Uh, the second time I was uh, leading an asset manager was in MFS. And there uh, in 2004, the SEC came down pretty hard on them in a, in a late trading problem and they paid a fine. And uh, <clears throat> I came in as executive chairman with a very talented president, Rob Manning, and uh, we were really uh, under the gun. Lots of clients were concerned about us and it was a bit touch and go, but together we managed to turn MFS around. And uh, by the time I left uh, seven years later, we had uh, pretty much tripled the assets from about 120 billion to almost 400 billion. So I really like turnarounds because there's a sense of real satisfaction in really making a difference. And it's also a time when people are receptive to real change. And so if you can make a difference, uh, bring about real change, and the result is uh, a success, well, that feels good. So you've been very eloquent about uh, you know, thriving in, in a business context and in a turnaround context. And I wonder if I can go just even maybe one layer a little bit deeper. Um, I'm wondering how you thrive like personally, like in your personal life, where do you feel like you're thriving? Like, what does that look like? Well, uh, my family has always been very important to me. Uh, I've been married to the same woman now for almost 45 years. And that's been a tremendous uh, uh, sense of satisfaction and a tremendous sense of support. Uh, and uh, she, she's been great. And uh, we have two children and now four grandchildren. And they're all wonderful. They're very supportive. And we try to support them. And uh, that gives me a very strong sense of satisfaction. Well, I think we could spend a whole podcast episode just on your advice for how one survives and thrives after you know 45 years of marriage, but that's for another day. So for today, today we're going to go back to, I guess, the world of, of work. 
And before we go into your book, I'm very curious, uh, you're one of the few people who has managed to bridge both sort of theory and practice. You've spent many years getting your hands kind of in the sort of proverbial sense, dirty, running businesses, leading teams, but you also teach at a, a very prestigious business school. Um, and I'm curious, like, what has been your most satisfying course that you, you teach? What do you enjoy most in your teaching career? I enjoy most the interaction with the students. Uh, we have a great, great, great group of students at MIT. They're uh, great uh, uh, thinkers and they have a lot of imagination. And I put together a course called Innovation in Financial Services. What's satisfying is how, uh, how that changes so quickly. And, you know, uh, I started teaching that course uh, right after the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. So we dealt with a lot of issues like mortgage securitization and these things. But now, you know, we're, we're into uh, <clears throat> micro lending, we're into peer to peer lending. Uh, we have cyber security issues. We have uh, different types of new types of currencies, uh, new types of clearing systems. So, so the fintech uh, revolution has really been dramatic at a place like MIT. And there are people starting new businesses every year and they have so many different ideas. I just yesterday uh, talked to a group of undergraduates at MIT. I support the uh, Entrepreneurship Center at MIT. We set up uh, seven summer interns with new companies. And one of the companies is trying to figure out how to uh, bring about in a practical way uh, quantum uh, computing. And you know we know it has a huge potential, but exactly how that's gonna be realized and applied to investment operations and investment uh, analysts, uh, that's a different story. So what is the financial innovation that you are most excited about for this year or coming soon? Well, I think the most exciting financial innovation is blockchain, but not the type of blockchain uh, that people uh, associate, you know, with um, the, uh, the the, the types of uh, pseudo currencies that you have. I think blockchain as a way to really revolutionize the back office of the whole financial service industry. That's where the practical impact is. And you probably, you know, you'd have a distributed ledger system, but it would be a different distributed lever, led, ledger system. Uh, than the ones that uh, are used for these currencies. Uh, you would have ones that were more, uh, that had some privacy aspects and some walls around them and weren't just distributed across the world. So one of the other courses that you teach is productivity to executives. And I was thinking, wow, aren't executives generally super productive? That's kind of how they got to be executives. So <laughs> I think, <laughs> Everyone wants to know how do I boost my my productivity. So, what are a couple of your like your your smart hacks to boost productivity? 
Well, we have a lot of people who are middle level executives that take these courses. And many of them have been great individual performers. And now they've started to manage larger and larger groups. And I find that that's the biggest challenge that they have. They're so used to being individual performers that their response, if there are a set of big projects is, well, I can do this best or I should do that. But that's really not the right question. The question is, what can I and only I as the leader do? And that leads you to a much more a, a different type of system in which there's a lot of delegation. So I find that the single biggest skill that <clears throat> leaders have in moving from individual performers to being CFOs, CEOs, chief marketing officer is the ability to delegate and delegate effectively. And that means that you've got to tolerate some degree of good faith mistakes. If you are delegating and then there's a mistake and then you reassert control and you've given up a lot of the benefits of delegation. So what you really need to do if there's a mistake is really analyze it very carefully and figure out how to prevent that mistake from happening again. And that's the key rather than uh, trying to reassert control. I think a second thing that I find is that a lot of executives haven't been rigorous enough with themselves about how they're prioritizing their time and exactly how they're allocating it. And they wind up going to a large number of meetings and participating in a large number of phone calls where those meetings and phone calls aren't really critical to their success. And the higher up you go, the more times people want to meet with you, the more times they want to call. And if you do that pretty soon, you're swamped all day. And I always was amused when I was a CEO to see my fellow CEOs all had these little cards in which they had every hour of the day scheduled. And I would say to them, well, uh, is thinking part of your job? And of course they would giggle and say, of course. And uh, then I said, but I don't see that on the list here. I don't see free time for thinking. And so that's the other thing that I insist on in this course that people take an hour in the morning and an hour later in the day to allocate it for thinking time. Now, some in some cases, they might have emergencies, company emergencies or personal contingencies that come about. So they might not be able to get every hour, but they should be able to get seven or eight hours a week of thinking time. And that may seem obvious, but if all you do is go to meetings and have phone calls, you actually don't have much time for thinking. And I think, I believe strongly that one of the most critical jobs of any leader is to understand the external environment and translate it as to what it means for that organization and company. And that takes real thinking time. Yes. 
So I wonder if one could kill two birds with one stone and do your thinking time as your exercise time. So not only are you getting your brain stimulated, but you can get some physical workout at the same time too. Well, I'm all in favor of exercise every day. And uh, I agree totally with that. I guess it depends on uh, how vigorous your exercise is. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I think that might make sense. Yeah. But I don't think you should try to have all your thinking time be when you're exercising because some important thinking time is just very quiet time where you sit with your pencil or pen like you have and a little paper and you, you sort of map out some ideas or maybe you bring in somebody who's really what I call an intellectual deep pocket you have a really heavy conversation with them about does this change in strategy make sense for our organization and how would we go about designing it so i like to i like to think that if you're a really good chief executive that you'll engage in that sort of thinking uh, as much as possible so just going back to your comment a moment ago, uh, sort of some executives that are attending lots and lots of meetings, going you know to opening different emails, uh, going to different calls. Do you think one simple hack is simply the ability to learn to say no to more things? Because everything you're saying yes to means, by definition, you can, you know we have to say no to something else. So is that a simple lesson that Abs we have to absolutely. learn? Absolutely. One yeah. thing we advocate in the book is that. Uh, if you get a request to go to a meeting or conference call without an agenda, you politely say, I'm sorry, but I'll need the agenda before I'll accept. And then look carefully at the agenda and see whether it's something that you should go to. The other mechanism or uh, tactic we suggest is that you have a two-sided schedule. And we say that on the one side, you have all of your appointments and meetings, and on the other side, you write yourself a little note about what you're trying to achieve at this appointment. And that's really critical so that you can figure out what you want out of the meeting or the appointment. And if it's not important enough, then you ought not to go. So let's turn our attention now to your, your latest book. It's sort of hot off the presses. And you turned it around, it sounded like in, in record time last year. I'm so curious, how did this book come about? The book came about because I have been having discussions with my publisher, HarperCollins, in the last several years about sort of a sequel to my prior book called Extreme Productivity. That book is now translated into 10 languages, and so there is a, a popular appeal. And when the pandemic hit, everyone all of a sudden was thrown into remote work. And uh, I teach this course and I invited um, Alexandra Samuel, who writes a lot for the Wall Street Journal, uh, to be a guest lecturer in the course, to talk about some of the things that she writes about, about how to organize your home office, how to get your software together, Lots of really great stuff that's important to people who are working remotely. And as we work together uh, in putting together this part of the course, I thought this is what we ought to do. We ought to write a book on remote work in which we took some of the principles that I've been developing uh, in my prior work and applied it to remote work 
but but I also needed her because she's a social media maven and she's also up on the latest softwares and the latest technologies. And we wanted to have all that. So it was all, all together in one packet. And then, you know, we tried to make it fun. We tried to make it a fun book and an easy book to read. And if you looked at it, you can see the chapters are short. We have takeaways. And uh, there's a lot of humor in there and uh, very practical advice. And one of the things we did is we interviewed a number of people that who have been working remotely and we put their stories as profiles at the end of each chapter. And people really like that. It gives a real concrete sense of what these people who are working remotely, what they're doing and how they're coping with these situations. Well, I'd love to hear some of those stories, but before we do more storytelling, I just want to read something to the listeners um, that you had written. And you wrote, after the pandemic ends, most employees will prefer a Goldilocks plan of not too much and not too little remote work. Very few employees want to return to the office five days a week, but most employees also don't want to stay at home all the time. So it begs the two questions. The first is, how should employees decide which days to come to the office? And then the flip side is what are the challenges that the managers face when they're running uh, with teams that have a, a hybrid model? So let's start with the first one. I'm trying to decide, gosh, do I come back five days? Do I come back one day? Do I come back three days? How do I make that decision? Well, I think uh, we suggest uh, that you look at a number of factors. The first is the nature of your work. So to the extent that you have work that uh, requires very uh, high degree of concentration for long periods of time, that would militate towards your being in the office. But if you have work that requires close collaboration or brainstorming, well, then uh, you're going to want to be in person to the extent you can. The second is uh, location. Uh, if you're in a, a, a city like uh, Charlottesville or Richmond, uh, and most of the people who work for the company are in that area, then getting together is quite easy. But if you're in New York City or LA, where you have to have an hour and a half commute each way, well, then you're going to tend to want to be at home. A third question is, how is your, your uh, company or your nonprofit organized? I mean, are they based in teams? Are they in individuals? Or do they have satellites? You know, how is that? How does that happen? And probably the last thing is culture. Uh, what's the culture of your company? And how can we capture that? And I believe strongly that in order to maintain culture, you do need a significant uh, amount of in-person relationships. And so we in the book recommend that when you're onboarding somebody, even if they're gonna work, let's say four days a week remotely, you wanna bring them into the office where they can see how people act and they can sort of learn the informal mores. Having said all that, and this sort of leads into your second question is, we can't, I believe, let every individual choose for himself or herself in a large company. It just would be too chaotic. 
in the end, I think that teams have to get priority over individual choice. And so it's the manager of the team that has to figure out what's the best for the team. So it may be the case that certain members of the team feel they want to be at home four days a week and others think two days a week. Well, we've got to sort of reach a reasonable schedule where all the team members are going to come to the office on the same days, and then we're going to get the benefits of this collaboration and brainstorming. So I think that's the role of the team manager. And if you think of, say, a financial services firm, it's really a conglomeration of different teams. You have an investment analyst team. You have a marketing team. You may have a customer service team, maybe on the phones. Uh, you can have an IT team. And so the answers that you come up with for these factors may differ from team to team. And it's up to the team manager to figure out what's best for that team. So as I don't believe you can have just individual choice, I think if you try on a top-down basis, just to say this is gonna be the rule for the whole organization, I'm not sure that works very well because most organizations, the functional aspects of the, uh, of the organization are in teams. And so that's what we need to do. And that implies a much larger role for the team manager. Right. And so are there certain strategies that you recommend for those team managers to be a more effective leader, especially with uh, juggling multiple issues with some remote, some at work, some other parts of the organization that are different from their team? What would you recommend? And how does one keep the culture? <clears throat> yeah, so, so, so in the book, we discuss a number of strategies yeah. that team managers should take. Uh, one is to have uh, set common norms for the team. So when you're having people, people work remotely and some in the office, you have to decide what are the hours when everyone's expected to be on? How promptly are people expected to respond to uh, messages of various sorts? Uh, are people expected to check their email or their Slack channel on the weekends. So you want the team manager has to set these norms for the team. And then we wanna see team managers have a weekly meeting, but you know, I've been to a lot of weekly meetings and most of them are backward looking. They're essentially where people report on what they did in the prior week. And I'm strongly against that. We need forward looking meetings in which people say, this is what my plan is for the coming week. Give me some input intellectually. Maybe you have some contacts, various other things. The third thing is I think that the, the manager has to touch base with the people who are working mainly remotely. In every organization, there'll be certain people who will want to come into the office a lot and others who will want to do the minimum. And we don't want to have the people remote feel like they're second-class citizens. And there is some evidence that the people who come to the office have a bit of a leg up because they get to know the boss better. They may be there for certain informal meetings. So I think the team manager has to work very hard with those remote people to 
make sure they get the information in uh, that they have a chance to have a, a good discussion. And lastly, I'll just say um, the question of performance reviews. So one of my big bugaboos is against annual performance reviews. In most organizations, they're very formalistic. Uh, they really aren't based on uh, very good metrics or very good objectives. Uh, <clears throat> somebody sits down, they have a discussion, there's some notes that are being taken, and they're put in the circular file and nobody refers to them again. What I'm interested in is regular performance feedback, maybe at the end of each large project or if not then, maybe one supporter. And those, that feedback should be based on the sorts of objectives and what we call success metrics that the manager has agreed with the team mem member as to what they're gonna achieve during that period or on that project. And then the point is to evaluate how well did the employee do relative to those success metrics. If there are successes, I wanna see celebration. And by the way, I think there's not enough celebration going on when people are successful. And if there are problems, you wanna see what were the problems and how can we avoid them in the future? So that's what a good team manager does, gives constructive feedback periodically, doesn't wait till the end of the year. Uh, that's a little crazy. So as you were talking, a word that I scribbled down was communication. Sounds to me that a lot of this all comes down to really being effective communicators, sort of both the team leaders, but also CEOs communicating with their teams. And I think over the past year, we've heard stories of the companies that seem to have, to use your word, thrive earlier. Those that have thrived in COVID have been really strong communicators and those that have maybe wobbled a little bit haven't been such good communicators. What is your you're advice? You're absolutely right. There have been a number of studies done, and the companies where the employees feel they've been most productive and most satisfied are those ones in which they feel that their managers and senior leaders have communicated well, communicated well uh, what the company was going to do, how it's gonna to respond to the crisis and communicated well about what were the expectations for the team. I think a lot of people in this very new world of hybrid work are unclear as to what the expectations are. So I couldn't agree with you more. Communication, communication and communication. Yep. I heard an interesting phrase, well, actually I read an interesting phrase last week, it was in a, a LinkedIn post and someone was just commenting, uh, it was actually Adam Grant had posted talking about sort of looking at the culture of organizations, so the way to sort of understand the culture of an organization is to look at the CEO and who he or she surrounds himself or herself with and who gets promoted. Um, and someone had commented that an interesting way to look at the culture of an organization can also be what is tolerated. And he used the phrase culture via inaction. And I thought that was also really interesting, the things that are unsaid, undone. So instead of you know lack of communication, it's almost like communication via inaction tells you a lot as well. 
Well, I think you're absolutely right. And that's why we think that uh, employees need to come to the office sometime, especially new employees, because they have to see what are these, what you might think of as implicit mores, implicit ground rules, and what sorts of behaviors are implicitly not tolerated and not allowed, and what is encouraged. And, you know, these days, I would say lots of leaders want to talk the talk, and it's sort of like almost required to make certain sorts of statements about you're supportive of work-life balance and you want your uh, employees to thrive. But what they do is very different. And some of them uh, walk the talk and others just talk. And then if you see what they actually do or don't do, that's a very different story. Yes, absolutely. So before we go to our, sort of, our, our three final fun questions, I just want to remind the audience that we'll have links uh, to your book and the articles we've mentioned in the show notes. So they'll be able to find everything that we've talked about so far today. And now we go on to uh, what I call, uh, the, I guess, the fun side of things. And the, cl the first closing question is... Hey, we haven't had fun so far. I know, the, the even funner <laughs> part of the conversation. <laughs> the more fun part. The more fun it, part. Like. Um, it's the first one is what we call, what I call, the, the ray of sunshine question. And that really is uh, just to think of one positive, long lasting change that you hope to see as a result of the pandemic? Well, I, I hope that we will have people much more uh, expressly communicating and really being clear about what their expectations are. I think a lot of managers in the past just thought they would sort of walk around the office and do these things. But when people are remote, the pandemic, then we have to make a lot more of these things explicit. And I think that uh, some managers were really good at it and others weren't as good. And I think that uh, the ones who were most successful also were managed to build culture remotely. I was very intrigued by the story of uh, a manager who uh, had uh, cooking classes for her team and she had delivered to them all the ingredients. So everybody got their ingredients and then they could have a cooking class together and it was a huge success. So that sort of creative way to uh, establish team bonds, you know, that's, that's, that's what's happened in a lot of different organizations um, and in different and new ways. So the second question is what I call the NASA question. And I call it that because it came from a, a middle school, I guess, a question for, for kids to think about. And that is you're about to go on a, a long duration space flight. And Bob, you can only take one thing with you. What are you going to take? Well, I, I would probably just take a, 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 a portable computer because a portable computer gives me access to uh, music, it gives me access to all sorts of news, it gives me access to um, listen to your podcast, it gives me access to reading books, it gives me access to all this information. So uh, if I only took one thing, that's what I take because it's a gateway 
to so many other things. It is indeed a gateway. And now possibly the funnest of the questions, um, you get to imagine a superpower and uh, we're gonna choose between flight or invisibility. So you can either choose one of those, whichever you choose, you're the only person in the world that has that particular superpower. Which one do you choose and what do you do with it? That is a very hard question. <laughs> I can only choose one superpower. Is that yes, it? And, and it can only be one of those. You can have the power to fly or the power to be invisible. I think I would choose to, the power to be invisible. Ooh. And uh, I think it would be because uh, I really love the idea of being able to learn about all these people, what they're thinking, what they're doing, uh, all these organizations. And of course, if you're there, you're a barrier to figuring out what's happening. But if you're invisible, then you could just flit around the country, flit around the world, and just listen and learn a huge amount. And then you would be able to formulate much more sensible uh, responses and actions. Uh, the problem is that most of us don't have an ability to listen and learn and, you know, uh, our very presence sort of prevents uh, people from talking directly. And you know, I will bring this back to leadership and CEOs because I think one of the biggest problems CEO and leaders have is when they're there, people don't feel that they can honestly say what their opinion is. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> of course, being invisible would, would have, a, you know, would circumvent that problem. But what I always used to try to do is when I, gave my opinion, I tried to say, this is a rebuttable hypothesis. This is what my preliminary thinking is, but I'm not sure if it's the right answer. And I encourage you to give me feedback and tell me why it might be wrong and what other approaches might be taken. And so, um, by using the term rebuttable hypothesis, it's a little formal, but it gives you the sense, gives the listeners the sense that they can actually argue with you and come up with something differently. And then of course, you've gotta be ready that if somebody gives a persuasive argument about why your rebuttable hypothesis needs to be modified, you need to be ready to modify it. So that's my, uh, practical substitute for being right. invisible, which is pretty hard to do if you're yes. a leader of an organization. But this, this, this at least provides a focus for discussion and debate, yeah. but it's a very, but lets the team and the organization know that you're, you're receptive, you're, you're encouraging debate and, uh, and modification of your, uh, initial opinion. So, that's my uh, that's my suggestion for uh, how shall we call it practical invisibility. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you chose invisibility because some people go straight for flights or they sort of think a bit on invisibility and then they demur back to flights. So I think we'll have to give your superhero name Incognito Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. I like it. I like it.
And on that note, incognito above, um, thank you so much for joining us. I was going to show you, I had lots of fun, not just at the end, right throughout we had fun. So it was a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Well, it really was a pleasure to have you, Lauren. It's impressive how well prepared you were. And uh, it was also a lot of fun <laughs> and interacting with you. So uh, I really appreciate it. You've made my afternoon. Great. Well, thank you. You've made mine and best of luck with the book. Thank you. Take All care. Right. Take care. <laughs> You've been listening to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can do so on our YouTube channel or wherever you listen to the show. That way you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate a rating and review. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. And a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.